0: And for the rest of us, if you have a Bible, please open to Philippians chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the seat back in front of you. And you'll find Philippians 1 on page 830 in that Bible. So we're looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. And it's the first Sunday of a new year. And so it's a time of year when we make resolutions and we evaluate the year gone past and we consider what our plans and priorities for the coming year are. And so it's a good time to ask a very important question. And and that question is, are you sure that you want to be a Christian for another year? Don't be too quick to answer. Because this question might seem like a no-brainer, but but if you take an honest look at today's passage and what it really says, I think it's a question that we can't help but grapple with. Or, Or to put the question another way, what good reason is there to be a Christian for another year? Now, when I say Christian, I'm not talking about the 75% of Americans who still claim to be Christians, but rather the kind of Christian that Christianity's founder, Jesus Christ, invited people to become. The kind of Christian described in this book, um, the main document that we have regarding what Christianity is. A Jesus Christian, a Bible Christian. Do you want to be that kind of Christian? And, And what good reasons are there to be one? I mean, as, as I read this passage, I see a lot of reasons that someone might choose not to be a Christian. Let's start with the author of this passage, a captive, a prisoner by the name of Paul. Paul writes this uh, letter containing our passage this morning from prison. We don't know for sure where Paul's imprisoned at this time. There's a good chance he's in Rome, although some think he's in Ephesus or Caesarea. But regardless of which prison Paul is in, he's a prisoner nonetheless. And he writes this letter, and as he writes it, his chains rattle. He he can't go where he wants. He can't earn a living. He can't see friends or take care of his needs without asking for permission. Paul can't go to church. He can't go for a walk on a sunny afternoon. He can't take his nephews to a ball game, or in his case, probably a chariot race. Paul won't be home for Christmas this year. Paul is a prisoner with, with a soldier or two guarding his door, or perhaps chained to his, on his two sides. And, and, and Paul is a prisoner precisely because he's a Christian. That's what his Christianity has gotten him. What good reason is there to be a Christian? Let's also think about the people Paul is writing to, a group of Christians in the great Greek city of Philippi. Paul is writing to them partly because they are suffering just like he is. If you look down at uh, Philippians 1, verses 29 to 30, a little further than we read this morning, it says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. Since you are now going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul is writing to the Philippians. He's telling them, you heard I was in prison, and, and yes, I still am. And, and I realize that you are going through the same struggle, the same suffering as me. Evidently, some of the Philippians are now in prison too or, or they're in some other painful, costly way, they're being persecuted and suffering for their faith. What good reason is there in this passage to be a Christian? Let's go back and look more closely at Paul's situation now. If you know anything at all about Paul, then you know that he was a man on a mission. It it comes through in this passage. Paul was a man of vision. He was an ambitious man, a a driven man. Paul had, had a strong sense of calling, a burning passion to be about one thing, proclaiming the gospel preaching it, spreading the message about Jesus Christ far and wide. Paul wasn't the kind of guy who, who wanted to settle down in one place and pay, play it safe. No, Paul was an adventurer, an intrepid man who would walk for hundreds of miles and brave stormy seas and, and blaze new trails not traversed before for one purpose, to share the message about Jesus Christ everywhere. But now here's poor Paul, cooped up like a bird in a cage. Doubtless there were places that he was longing to go; that there were people he was he was burning to visit, to, so that they could know about Jesus too. But uh, not but, uh, but Paul had a, had a job to do. He he um he had a commission to discharge, a, a calling to fulfill. And and yet, here's where the butt comes in. He was stuck. He was stymied. And this is serious because people out there were in spiritual darkness. People's eternal fates were were hanging in the balance, but Paul couldn't do anything about it. Paul was stuck right where he was in a small cell, tethered, restrained, helpless. If this is what happens to to Christians who are most committed to the cause, then what good reason is there to be one? And now let's think more about the Philippians. Philippians. As you read the letter of Philippians, you realize that there's a special bond of friendship and partnership between them and Paul. They love Paul. They care for him a great deal and they've invested a great deal in Paul's ministry and mission. They believed in Paul. They were his cheering section. They affirmed his calling. These Philippians, they pray for Paul regularly. They, They are partnering with him financially and sacrificially in his mission. And now here's their missionary, their representative, who they've funded significantly and prayed for earnestly, and he's languishing in a Roman cell. When you're on, or when your team is losing, you feel it whether you're in the game or you're on the bench. And and so the Philippians, who are closely connected to Paul, are are no doubt really feeling the discouragement and, and the deflation and the failure of his being in prison instead of out proclaiming the message of Jesus. What an unfortunate waste this is of hard-earned resources to have him detained so long. What a heart-wrenching state of affairs. Their common plans and their hopes with Paul are all foiled, and someone whom they love is suffering so. And now on top of that, it seems some of their own in Philippi are imprisoned too. These Christians are under assault by the broader culture. They're losing the game, it would seem. Think of those Philippians who are in prison for their faith. They're they're cut off from their families. They're they're ripped from their jobs and their lives. Perhaps they have a spouse or a child to support back at home and little economic means for their family to get by while they're in prison. What good reason is there to be a Christian? To really understand the gravity of this question, we have to understand more about the world in which these people and Paul lived. The Roman Empire the mighty Roman Empire, the majestic Roman Empire. The era of Rome was arguably the greatest period the world had ever known. Most of the known and, and civilized world was was now together as one, with uh, connected by a, a common language and a common network of roads so that all could grow and thrive. People enjoyed peace and safety. Thanks to Rome, they were able to settle down and build a future. They were prospering, they were growing. Art and commerce and trade were flourishing during this period. People recognized and they were grateful for this Pax Romana, this peace of Rome, which had settled over the world at that time. And they revered the the awesome might of Rome, which made it possible. And they hailed and they lauded the, the, the Caesars who presided over this time in history. In fact, Caesar himself, they actually called Savior and Lord. Do you realize that? Veneration for Caesar was certainly prominent in Rome, where his capital was, um, and where there's a good chance Paul was in prison, awaiting trial in Caesar's court, perhaps. And such veneration of Caesar was all the more prominent in Philippi, because this city had been founded by Caesar itself, and, and Caesar had given the citizens of this city special rights and honors. You see, after Caesar Augustus had um, led his troops in victory, consolidating his empire, he constituted Philippi as a uh, military colony for many of his troops when they retired. And as a result, in Philippi, loyalty and appreciation for Caesar ran particularly high. Caesar was their man. Now historians tell us that by the time, or or by this time, that Paul's writing in, in places like Philippi, people were beginning not just to praise Caesar as their great Lord and Savior, but also to actually worship him as such. And now you can see why the Philippian Christians may have been running into trouble. Because, of course, worshiping Caesar was an act that they could never participate in because they served another Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so as pressure mounted for people to express their citizenship to Rome by worshiping at Caesar's altar, the Philippians were in a tough situation. For Paul, meanwhile, Rome's power and splendor and might and its great veneration of Lord Caesar made things challenging in other ways. I mean, can, can you imagine um, confronting a culture, an empire that great? Uh, greater power, greater prosperity, greater might and stability than the world had ever known, all overseen and ruled by Caesar, the great Lord and Savior. And here's Paul going around preaching about another king, another Lord, another Savior named Jesus. Jesus, a Lord who was largely unknown, who had founded no great empire, who commanded no army, who had no impressive credentials. In fact, Paul's so-called king Jesus was of Jewish background. He was from one of the conquered peoples and a despised and troublesome people at that in Rome's view. The Jews from whom Jesus came were were backwards, they were uncultured, they were almost barbaric by Roman standards. And they were a constant source of of headache for the mighty Romans. And who was this Jewish king that Paul was making noise about? Well, Paul's Jesus was not even a prominent Jew, but rather some itinerant preacher from some Jewish backwater that no one even could probably find on the map. And now get this, the most notable fact about this obscure Jewish teacher was that the Romans had crucified him. Crucifixion, this was a heinous, shameful punishment that Rome reserved for the most despicable and pitiful riff-raff of their conquered peoples. And here's Paul loudly proclaiming that this unknown Jewish peasant who had been crucified in shame is actually the Savior and the Lord, or a Savior and a Lord, worthy of greater honor and allegiance than Caesar. Can you see what a joke this was? It was pure blabbering. It was foolishness. People could hardly take it seriously, or if they did, just seriously enough to throw the crazy fool in prison, which is where Paul was. What good reason is there to be a Christian? Now of course this is all ancient history. That may have been Paul's situation back then and along with that of the Philippians, but but what about us today? Well, things haven't changed that much, have they? I mean, we too live in a mighty strong powerful empire. We enjoy safety and prosperity. Granted things have been a little rough for the past few years, But by world standards, we still sit at the top of the heap, enjoying unprecedented uh, freedoms and benefits. American military might is still unsurpassed around the world, and so we feel relatively safe. Our voice in international affairs is the strongest and the loudest, so we often get our way. Our economy is still the richest. And we, especially if we live in Westchester and Putnam counties, We enjoy the benefits and the blessings of all this. The wealth, the comforts, the opportunities, the privileges. We are our own lords. We are our own saviors, with a little help from our employers and our government. So who is this Jesus, this so-called King, this far-off voice questioning our state of affairs, claiming to be the rightful Lord and Savior, calling us to to lay aside our comfort and our prosperity and and to consider his claims and to take up his way of walking in weakness and sacrifice and suffering. What good reason is there to be a Christian? And and then there's all Paul's talk about death in the second half of this passage. Evidently, as Paul wrote this letter, he anticipated that his trial was coming up soon. And, And Paul knew that if he was convicted that he would be facing the death penalty. And so in verses 20 to 26, Paul weighs in his own mind the the two possible options he's he's facing, acquittal and freedom on the one hand or conviction and death on the other. Listen to verses 22 to 24. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. What kind of man is this Paul? <laughs> he seems to hope that he will actually be convicted and sentenced to death. He calls that option better by far. Is Paul that desperate? Is, is, has his life gotten that bad? Now, but before you over-spiritualize this, consider if it was your neck that might soon be on a chopping block and you were back in your cell, you were mulling over your soon-to-be fate, would you in your heart of hearts hope and wish to be convicted and to get the electric chair or lethal injection or rather than being acquitted and, and set free to go on with your life and your calling in peace? Yet death is what Paul, the Christian, is inclined to prefer. And, and he writes this to the Philippians to encourage them in their own persecutions. What good reason is there to be a Christian? Are you following me? <laughs> I mean, Christianity is all really nice and pleasant at Christmas time as we wear our $100 warm sweaters and we watch our well fed and well educated children acting out the story of baby Jesus. But that kind of Christianity is not real. It's just a fairy tale if we leave out the part about how Jesus grew up and lived as a poor and sometimes homeless teacher calling people to leave everything else behind and to follow him unconditionally, claiming that the way to win is by losing, that the way to be great is by being a nobody, that the way to gain is by giving up, pronouncing blessing on the poor and woes on the rich insisting that everyone who would follow him must hate their life and take up their cross and promising that his followers would be misunderstood and persecuted on account of him. And then this Jesus had gotten himself killed in the most horrid, agonizing, shameful way and said it was an example for his followers to follow. Indeed, what good reason is there to be a Christian? a real Christian, a Bible Christian, a Jesus Christian. What good reason did Paul have? What good reason did the Philippians have? Well, let me give you a good reason. And that is that faced with the rivalry and the competition between Savior and Lord Caesar on the one hand and Savior and Lord Jesus on the other hand, Paul and the Philippians actually believed and saw hopeful evidence that Savior and Lord Jesus would win out in the end. That's what Paul, the prisoner, was convinced of, and and he was writing to the suffering Philippians to encourage them about it, too. That Jesus, backwards and upside down, though his kingdom was and is, was actually going to win. Paul saw evidence of this hope in in the spread of the gospel message about King Jesus, even while Paul was in chains and not free to spread it himself. Verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul goes on to tell that that how even while he is locked up as as a uh, prisoner of Caesar, nevertheless, the message of Jesus is being spread abroad. Caesar may be able to chain Paul, but he cannot chain the gospel, the message of King Jesus. First of all, Paul himself has had a chance to spread the gospel among all of Caesar's soldiers. As they have taken turns guarding Paul, Paul has made it known to them why he's on trial and and who this Jesus is whom he serves. And as a result, word has evidently spread through the army about this man Jesus and his claim to be the true Savior and Lord. Not only that, Paul continues, but um, Paul's imprisonment has served to embolden the Christians living in the city where Paul is incarcerated. Evidently, having Paul in town as a prisoner has made the Christians there more courageous themselves in talking to others about Jesus. Maybe they were inspired by Paul's courage maybe they were encouraged by reports of Roman soldiers who were hearing the gospel Paul says some of the Christians even seem to be motivated to share the gospel out of jealousy and a selfish desire to cause trouble for Paul but he says what do I care at least the gospel is being preached my task and my commission is being carried out even though I myself am in bonds in fact it's being carried out because I am in bonds Savior and Lord Caesar can do his best to stop the message about the fact that Jesus is the true Savior and Lord but in the end Jesus will see that his message just spreads all the more. And this continues to be the case in Paul's day and in the years to come as the the early Christian church endured terrible persecutions under Roman Caesars like uh, Nero and Trajan and Domitian and others. And yet within 300 years, when the smoke is finally cleared, the kingdom of Jesus has overcome the kingdom of the Caesars and transformed the Roman world. And so it's continued ever since, as the gospel of Jesus Christ has spread around the world. Caesars have come and gone, and many other great rulers after them, and yet Jesus' kingdom marches on. And when lords and rulers have tried to stop Jesus' rule, often it has just spread all the more, weak and peaceful, though it is. And so trying to stop Jesus' kingdom must have been like trying to swat dandelions gone to seed on a windy day. (laughs) And this has been true often enough that, that there's a proverb among missionaries today which goes like this. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so today, this weak and suffering and vulnerable movement has reached much of the entire world. And that's why Paul can rejoice as he writes this letter. Though he's in prison, though he's writing to to people he loves, people who love him, who who are suffering just like he's suffering, Paul can encourage them to rejoice too. And it's this hopeful perspective which leads Paul to make the amazing and well-known statement in verse 21, But to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you want to live in Caesar's kingdom, then you've got to hold on to your life. You've got to scheme, you've got to position yourself to get in on the prosperity and the security that Caesar can provide, hoping to gain as much as you can and to live as long as you can. But if Jesus is your king, then you have a different perspective. Because in Jesus' kingdom, if you live, you live for Jesus. Not for your own concerns, but for his, for for his kingdom, for his purposes. Because you believe that his kingdom is going to prevail in the end over Caesar's anyway. And as your good king, Jesus can be trusted to take care of what you need. And if you die in Jesus' service, well, that is gain. Because Your hope and and your love are with King Jesus, and and death doesn't pull you away from that. No, just the opposite. Death brings you right into the center of the king's presence himself. In death, it's like you fast forward in history, past all the rest of the trouble, from Jesus' kingdom still coming and all the groanings and struggles of that, to Jesus' kingdom fully come in all the peace and glory that it brings. And all is victory and all is peace and rest. John Chrysostom, who was Archbishop of Constantinople in the fourth century and was a very gifted preacher then, um, his preaching and his leadership eventually got him into trouble with the Roman Empire, and the Emperor Arcadius at the time summoned him. And when the Emperor threatened Chrysostom with banishment, Chrysostom replied, you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. Well, then I'll kill you, exclaimed the Emperor angrily. No, you cannot, retorted Chrysostom, because my life is hidden with Christ and God. Your treasures shall be confiscated, the emperor replied grimly. Sir, you you cannot do that either because my treasures are in heaven, as is my heart. Then I'll drive you from your people and you shall have no friends left, threatened the emperor. That you can't do either, sir, Chrysostom said, for I have a friend in heaven who has promised to never leave me and never forsake me. You see, what Paul and John Chrysostom both knew and what many other Christians have known since is that while Jesus died on a cross, crucified by Lord and Savior Caesar, that wasn't the end of the story. And it wasn't the end of Jesus' kingdom. No, because after Jesus' death came Jesus' resurrection. From death came life. Just like if you plant a seed in the earth, the seed may die, but but a flower of greater life and glory springs up. That's what happened to Jesus, and, and that's how his kingdom works. So if Jesus is your king, for you too, death is the gateway to the full life and glory of Jesus' kingdom. So Paul can say, to live is Christ, his kingship, spreading his message, advancing his cause. And to die is gain, is life, is the fullness of what now we're only briefly tasting and longing for. So what are the implications for our life in the new year? Well, the first thing we need to decide as we begin this new year is, do you really want to be a Christian? A Jesus Christian, a Bible Christian? The kind of Christian who lives his or her life as as if to live as Christ and to die as gain. A Christian who, like Paul and and like the Philippians, sees the advance of of the gospel to be of utmost priority and worth every sacrifice because it announces and it brings about the spread of Jesus' kingdom and, and, and the rule of Jesus as Savior and as Lord, a kingdom which will win out in the end, and even now, which is winning out. For such a Christian, this passage is full of encouragement. It offers us hope. It offers us courage. It offers us joy because in the end, we win. In fact, we can't lose. So how might you then live as a Christian in 2013? Well, there's a lot that the Holy Spirit will tell you if you ask him, and for each of us, it will be different. But let me mention a few things that come directly out of this passage. Like Paul, we could take the gospel more seriously. We could make it a point to learn how to share it better and, and to pray earnestly like Paul asks in this passage for greater courage for ourselves and, and then expect to receive it. Or um, perhaps to give our lives full time in seeing the gospel spread. Or like the Philippians, we could make more room in our budget and in our prayer list for the advance um, of the gospel of King Jesus, and for the support of those who spread it. Or you could uh, make more room in your heart and in your prayers for the many, many believers around the world right now who are being persecuted for the sake of Christ. You know, they say there are more Christians being persecuted today than at any other previous time in history. But if you do pray for them, please don't just pray that their persecutions would end many of them would be the first to tell you that that's not what they want and that that's not a particularly Christian prayer. As one uh, persecuted Christian put it to some of his or her Western friends, don't just pray for us that the weight of persecution be lifted, but rather pray that we'd have stronger backs to stand up faithfully under it. That's how Paul prays. After all, Paul's a Christian, a follower of King Jesus, the crucified one. For him, to, to live as Christ and to die is gain, because that's how Christians view things, and that's how Christ wins. And so, in this new year, may you have the courage to choose to be a Christian. Let's pray. Jesus, I think of Peter, when you told the truth, and the truth was hard to take and people started leaving you, you said to your disciples, Are you gonna go too? And Peter said, Lord, where else could we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Thank you that your Jesus, that your focus, that your mission, that your heart is about life. It's about love. It's about grace and goodness and reconciliation and the restoration of all things. The only way that it can happen through love, and love requires sacrifice. Thank you for giving us the invitation, should we choose to walk with you in that. Amen.